We continue in a sermon series that uh, we've been in this fall called Conform to the Image of Christ. And the theme um, has to do with how God and Jesus Christ uh, renews our humanity, restores the image of Christ, uh, restores our humanity by making us into the image of Christ. And this morning, uh, I thought it was appropriate in the light of the baptism um, to reflect on the theme of what does it mean for us to raise our children uh, in the image of Christ, to, to cultivate the image of God in our children. So this morning, we have two texts, and really I'll be primarily focusing on the, te- the uh, Old Testament text from Deuteronomy, but we have a text from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, and then also um, from Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12. So hear God's word to us this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, you shall shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when your son or daughter asks you in the time to come what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son or daughter, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there and he, that he might give us, bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our God always, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandments before him, before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. And now Colossians 2. In him, that is Jesus Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh and by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you pour your spirit upon us, just uh, as you have the children um, that were baptized this morning. Uh, Through your word, open our minds, our hearts, our imaginations to know what it means uh, to love you and to be loved by you, and what it means for us to raise our children in that reality of your love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Baptism, like circumcision under the Old Covenant, is a rite of initiation and belonging into the people of God. When God gave Abraham the rite of circumcision, it was meant to symbolize within the very uh, flesh of his body, his very humanity, Uh, that God's covenant with him, that God would be his God and he would be um, his people. Uh, But circumcision 
was also, also symbolized uh, that the people of Israel, God's people, were to be set apart from the other nations that did not know God. And so uh, circumcision was a rite of purification. It was um, a declaration, in a sense, uh, if you were an adult male coming in from outside, um, that you had put away all your idols and that you had been cleansed and that you would obey the Lord. Under the Old Covenant, all male babies on the eighth day were to be taken to the temple or the tabernacle to be circumcised. Again, this was a a visible reminder of what it meant to be initiated and belong within the community. And under the New Covenant, no longer do we have circumcision, thank goodness. (laughs) Um, And also, it's more inclusive of both genders. We have baptism. Baptism is a rite of initiation of belonging into the church, into the people of God. And in a similar way, um, baptism, even though it doesn't mark our flesh in quite the same way that circumcision does, baptism is still a mark in a sense. It still has to do with the way in which our humanity has been set apart for a special purpose and place, which is in Jesus Christ. And so I want to just draw your attention briefly to what Paul says here. Um, in baptism, we are made to belong to the humanity of Jesus. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is our initiation into the person of Jesus. Uh, It is the beginning of our journey to conformity to the image of Christ. Um, It is the beginning of the restoration of the image of God in us fully, according to his grace. Now, with the rite of circumcision of children, there was a a corresponding uh, pedagogy, if you will, that word pedagogy refers to teaching or a method of teaching and practice of teaching. There was a pedagogy, there was a parental imperative under the Old Testament or Old Covenant of what it meant to raise your children as covenant children. Um, And what we find in Deuteronomy 6 is this statement, you shall teach diligently to your children the commands and the ways of the Lord. And it is the same with baptism. With baptism of our children, there is a pedagogy, if you will, a corresponding pedagogy to teach our children diligently the meaning of what it, what it means to live into their baptism. Our primary responsibility as parents is to teach our children the commands and ways of God, or in a New Testament language, what it means to live into your baptism. So that's the question this morning. What does it mean to cultivate the image of God in our children? Uh, or what does it mean to teach them to live into the reality of their baptism? Now, if you don't have children, you're perhaps tempted to tune out this sermon. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, For two reasons. One, uh, we all as members in the body have an obligation to the care and nurture and formation of children. It is not simply uh, the parents alone and grandparents or relatives that are responsible for Christian nurture. It is the whole church. So whether you're single or Whoever you are, we all are called to the nurture and formation of kids. So we need to understand what that entails. But two, 
What is true for children is true for us as adults. <laughs> in many ways, this is a sermon on what does it mean to actually, in the pragmatics, be formed and shaped as a Christian and to live into your baptism. So as you hear what I say directed, especially to parents and children, listen as well with ears towards, what, for yourself, what does it mean for me to live into my baptism? Uh, I want to draw you back to Deuteronomy 6, which is where we receive this great command of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, and it's helpful to understand a little bit of context of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy means the second law. It's the second giving of the law. Um, the people of Israel have been taken out of Egypt, but they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience. And the book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving the law again, preparing them the, the children and the grandchildren, uh, for entry into the promised land. And so it's a book to children in many ways about what does it mean to, to live in the promised land according to the ways of God. And so the whole book is about that, 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 that orientation. And um, the question is, what is what are, what's the, the summation of the commands of God? What are we supposed to diligently teach our children? And it's very simple to love God, <laughs> to love God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Jesus called this the greatest command, which is a summary of the whole law. Love God with every fiber of your being. This is the first truth of what it means to be an image bearer that we are to teach and to model for our children. Now, I, I skipped over um, the outline this morning. In good teacher fashion, though, I, I want to backpack a little bit of what does it mean for us to form our children. There's three things in particular. We need to give our children, and ourselves, really, three things. A grand central story. Reinforcing ritual and models of devotion. A grand central story, reinforcing ritual and models of devotion. And it's right here in the context of Deuteronomy where we find this command. And it corresponds to a story. The command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. It corresponds to a prior reality. Again, it's what I said in the words of baptism. We love God because he first loved us. The command to love God above all things is preceded by the, God's prior love for us. This is the heart of what I'll call the grand central story. The story, com the, the, the command corresponds to the story. And I'll draw your attention here um, to verses 20 and 23 uh, and through 23 of chapter 6. So when, you're, when your children ask you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us up out of there that we, and that he, <clears throat> he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. 
This is the story to which the command corresponds. So when our kids ask us, why do we do this? It's not simply, well, we just, God tells us to do it, right? No, there's a reason. And the reason is the story. The command flows from the story. The, sto- the command only makes sense in the light of the story. Again, the Exodus story is this great, uh, it's, the, it's the central story of Israel that they recall uh, throughout the entire year and at different times with greater emphasis. And it's a story that gets drilled in again and again through everything that, that they are. And the commands only make sense in the light of the story. Again, in the beginning of the, the Ten Commandments, from Deuteronomy, it says, this is what the preamble is. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why obey God? Because he saved us. We were not a people. We were a people in slavery, and he pulled us out of Egypt. And he's leading us into the land of milk and honey. Now, there's been all kinds of research done um, and studies that show the importance of stories for the formation of children, especially for their moral imaginations. I've found that children, and my children at least, they relate to stories. I mean, they consume stories. There's always a story, like an audiobook going on. There's books everywhere. You know, they're reading all the time. They love stories. Because it's through story that you learn to relate to the world. Um, you learn to have a moral imagination. And so that's why stories are so important. We're not shaped primarily in our moral imagination in life through like codes of conduct or moral principles or just commandments. Those don't shape and form us. Story shapes and forms us. And, and how does it do this? Um, think about this. Whatever story, whatever story has the most plausibility and in inner appeal to you as a person is the one that's the most authoritative. Stories are authoritative in our lives. The stories that we believe, that we tell about ourselves to make sense of our lives, they have authority and they capture our imagination. And so we use stories actually to judge other stories. So I have a Christian story that makes sense of all the other competing stories outside of it, right? Story is authoritative because it captures us so deeply. You could say that story kind of gets beneath the skin, right? It sinks into our bones. That's how the imagination works. You know, as parents, we're often very concerned about uh, protecting our children from uh, explicit content out there or things we don't, bad influences, right? Whether it's sex or violence or bad language. And this is appropriate and we should do this. But I think sometimes we think too, too narrowly about what it means to protect our children. You know, like we want to keep them, the bad language and the violence and the sex away from them. But what we need to be doing as well is paying attention to what are the false stories, false narratives of our culture that our children are being influenced by. And most of the time, they're not gonna have the explicit content or our rating or anything like that. You know, we need to pay attention to those false narratives as well. What are the stories that our children are um, being exposed to that we need to be aware of and attentive to? And the reality is this, no matter how hard you try, you're not gonna be able to protect your children or completely remove all the different competing stories 
that would uh, lead them away from God's story. But here's the key. Here's the key. You have to out-narrate. You have to tell a better story. The only way the Christian story remains a compelling story in the lives of our kids as they grow up in a world awash with very different stories is the story, the grand central story, needs to be more compelling and more persuasive. It needs to be told better. All of our identities, our sense of who we are, in other words, is rooted in the stories that we tell about ourselves. Um, you know, we're in Halloween. Well, it is Halloween today, right? I'm, I'm blown away. I mean, Halloween is like a holy, sacred thing in our secular culture. Like, people put, and again, like, I'm not against Halloween. Don't take this as a... Uh, but people spend tons of money and energy and thought into getting into a costume. And, but think about it, right? It's a bit of a secular parable for how this works, right? We, we find these characters that we like. And the characters are always part of this broader story. And, you know, there's a way that we live into the characters, into that story. It's a, a bit of fantasy play. But this is actually what children do all the time. It's actually what we as adults do, but without costumes in our workplaces, we find characters whose stories we believe in and are attracted to, and we want to live into them. And, and so, um, story has the power to, to shape our lives. And so the question is, as families, what is our story? Are we telling the story of faith? Is, is faith in Jesus Christ, is a reality of baptism, a part of the story that our children are just going to see and bump into all over the place? Again, the story that captures the imagination has the force of law in our lives. The story that captures the imagination has the force of law and command in your life. And if you want to know what story you're living out, you have to ask that question. What are those things in my life that have the force of command and that I obey? Those are the stories. And so again, just as circumcision and obedience to the law has this grand central story behind it that's driving it, in the same way in baptism, it is the story of Jesus' dying and rising and my inclusion into that and what it all means. We need to teach our children the obligation to love God, but that, that obligation to love God is preceded that he loved us first, that he became a human being that he lived, that he died. He died for our sins and he was, rose from the dead. This needs to be this reframing story of our lives that we recite and we repeat and teach and walk in a hundred different ways in our lives and our households. So that's the first thing. The first principle is true for all of us, whether we're adult or child. We need a grand central story. But the second point, um, for a story to become compelling, in our lives, for it to get in, get beneath the skin, it needs to it needs to be ritualized, and that brings us to the second, the second principle, if you will, the reinforcing ritual. Uh, look at verses six through nine of Deuteronomy. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
So that great command, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, that's called the Shema in, in, um, in Hebrew. And I want to draw your attention to all the different activities that are related to keeping the law, this one command. We're told to teach it, talk, keep, walk, recite, fix, bind, write. The sense here is that the command and its reality and story needs to permeate every aspect of our lives and our household. It needs to be the air we breathe and the water we swim in. It needs to be the explicit curriculum of our households and the hidden curriculum. Um, I, I often refer to this book by Michael Lindsay, uh, View from the Top, where he had done this, this uh, decade-long research into leadership, and he had interviewed all these former presidents and CEOs and, and NGOs, all the most famous people in the world, and then he compiled together all his research and, and drew, drew some conclusions about what does it mean, what, what set these people apart as leaders, called platinum leaders. And one of his conclusions that always struck me was when it, the chapter on education, he observed that um, in the case of most all these leaders, the prestige of the school that they went to in grade school and college mattered much less in their formation of who they became than what he called the hidden curriculums of the schools. So it, the prestige, all that Harvard, you know, Yale, Princeton, all that stuff didn't matter as much. Later on in life, it matters for connections. But early on, it's the hidden curriculum. In other words, hidden curriculum is the unspoken culture of a school or a home. We all have it. We all have a hidden curriculum. It's actually what you encounter <laughs> in terms of just the mood or the atmosphere of a household or a church or an institution. And that those institutions that were deeply formative of people, their hidden curriculum tended to match up with the explicit one. And the hidden curriculum was, was, not, was, was very formative, right? And I think that's part of what it means um, that what, what, the, what, what Moses is talking about here. How do you make the love of God the hidden curriculum of your household? How do you do that? You need, you need all kinds of ways to get at it. You need liturgy, right? You need reinforcing ritual to make it happen. Um, story is shaped by the liturgies of our life. And that word liturgy, some of you might uh, think, oh, Roman Catholic or Orthodox or just the things, the rituals we do in church. But liturgy, is, it's just a repeated action that you do over and over again. Liturgies organize our life. It's the things we do. We wake up in the morning, I make coffee, and I go swimming. Or, you know, we all have these routines, they're liturgies. And they organize our life and they set the pattern of our life and they shape our experience and the culture that we live in. And so we need rituals in our lives. We depend upon them for stability in our life. Um, I want to draw your attention to one verse here. It says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. That is the commands. And they shall be frontlets between your eyes. Uh, and you, you, you maybe have heard of the term the phylactery. It's the Jews took this literally. And they, took, they had these little boxes with the commands of God and and some Jewish men would put them on their head, forehead, between their eyebrows, right? And that might seem silly to us, but I do think that there is a, and there's a deep truth here that the Hebrew imagination and the early Christians always understood, is that um, for something to become truly appropriated inwardly, 
in our lives. It needs to happen, not just by us sort of going in and saying, I really believe this. It's through externalized action and symbol. Right? It's just going through the habit. It's going, the repeated habit of doing something again and again and again. Think about all the things in your life that you love, the things that you value. Say, family dinner, right? <laughs> there's a ritual. There's a liturgy. We gather as a family. We have meal together. Everybody needs to show up, and ordinarily speaking, we pray. Perhaps we say thanks, say what we're thankful for. There's a liturgy. There's things. We protect that because it's important. There's all kinds of liturgies in our culture as well. I mean, just think about Packer game day. I mean, there's a liturgy, right? There's a liturgy around game day of any sport, right? Tailgating, you know, or gathering friends over for the party. And it's because Packers is a religion in Wisconsin, right? It's the same idea, though. We need ritual. We need reinforced um, liturgy in our lives. As parents, you learn this fairly quickly. When you have kids, kids need regular structure, ritual, and liturgy to, to, to flourish, right? Regular bedtimes, uh, regular meals, enough sleep. You know, you, you're just very structured because your ki- and your kids need it. They depend upon it. Even though sometimes they might resist, they need that to regulate their lives. And it's no different from us. And so the question is, do we have liturgies and reinforced ritual in our lives around the love of God? I mean, what are the liturgies of your life that point your children and yourself on the day-to-day basis to the reality that God exists and that he is the Lord and that he loves you and that you are called to love and obey him as well? What are those things? And this is where I think it's helpful for us to, in life to step back and look at the busyness of our lives and, and do a liturgical audit. Just like, you know, you get audited for your taxes. Times, it's good for us to step back and look at our lives and, and do an audit of where's my time being spent? You know, uh, and is God a part of that? And are my children being exposed to that reality? Because here's the thing, all those little liturgies you do, they always feed into a story. They're always feeding into a story. And most of the time we're not aware it's happening. And I think the caution for us as parents is like, is it possible that I'm catechizing and forming my children to stories um, that are not Jesus' story? And so we need to do audits of our lives on a regular basis as parents, as, as just believers in general. So we need Grand Central Story. We need reinforcing liturgies or reinforcing ritual in our lives. But finally, we need models of devotion. We need models of devotion. It's possible to grow up in a very deeply religious home with lots of story about Jesus, lots and lots of ritual. You go to church all the time. Um, and yet there's something missing. <laughs> there's something missing. And some of this, I know this is, some of you, maybe this was your story. And often what is missing are models of devotion. Parents. As parents, you are the single most formative influence in the life of your children, spiritually speaking. You're the single most formative influence in the life of your children. Uh, In Genesis, it says that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image. 
Family is that context that mediates all of life to us early on. It is the most definitive thing about who we are and who we become. More than any pastor or any Christian school teacher or Sunday school teacher, parents, you have the greatest long-term impact on the spiritual life of your own children. Which means you cannot outsource the spiritual formation of your children to the church, to the Christian school, to the grandparents. You have to take responsibility for it. You're not alone. You're not alone, thank goodness. But you, it's on you. It's on us as parents to take responsibility for the formation of our children. And the reality is this, is that it must flow from our own love for God. Imitation is one of the most powerful forms of learning in life. And you see this especially in young children. They want to imitate us. They want to do what we do, right? And our lived life as parents is the most powerful form of Christian nurture that we can do. And again, this feeds into that hidden curriculum of our lives. More than any uh, ritual or explicit teaching or story, nothing shapes the hidden life of faith in our household more than our own devotion as parents, as we just struggle and strive and seek to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. That means that our children, they need to see us pray. They need to see us learning, seeking to know God and to love God. They need to see us struggling and suffering and learning to how we deal with our suffering and bringing it to the Lord. Again, more than anything else in our household, our own character as parents matters deeply. And oftentimes there's dissonance, right? Um, in my experience, a lot of times that kids who grew up in households where, you know, faith is everywhere, church is every week, and constant, it feels like you're just surrounded by it. But sometimes what's missing is that the parents own life themselves. There's a contradiction there. There's a gap. And it's not just them struggling as sinners. But the hidden curriculum of life actually points in a different direction than the love of God. And when kids see this, kids know hypocrisy. Like, they smell it. They don't even have to know the word. They smell it. And they're like, ah, oh, that doesn't make sense. There's something that doesn't compute here. This doesn't seem true to me. Friends, the greatest single gift that you can give your children is your own love for God. The greatest single gift that you can give your children is your own love for God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, stroll, strength, and strength. <clears throat> we, uh, we don't need to be told, um, we don't need to be told to, to love our children. We instinctually as parents know how to love our children. Just, it's there. But we do need to be told to love God more than our children. When you love God more than your children, you will love your children more. Because the love of God is a kind of love that elevates all human loves. It elevates, it purifies, it orders, and unifies. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Why does it say the Lord your God is one? Because idolatry, the love of other gods, is something that fragments and fractures and scatters us and our families as well. 
But the love of God is a unifying love. It takes all the loves of our lives and it puts it in order in proper weight and balance with one another. And when we love God more than we love our children, we're really loving our children more because we know how to relate to them as our children. Now, raising children is an enormous responsibility that brings a lot of guilt and failure. Um, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I felt a lot of guilt and failure. I thought, like, and I was doing a little bit of a liturgical audit of our family life and thinking, man, I think we could use some correction here. And I think of the ways as a parent that I fail to form my children, and I'm sure those of you with children, whether small or out of the house, you're, I think parenting just comes with a lot of guilt, right? <laughs> comes with a lot of burdens. But let me, let me just offer you some encouragement, some words of grace and encouragement to close. Um, you're, we're called to be models, not of perfection, but models of grace. As a parent, <laughs> what's more important is not so much that you're perfect. Don't intentionally try to be bad, but you are, I mean, we're sinners. And what our kids need to see is us struggling to follow the Lord. So they need to see us, they need to see us fail, but also to get back up to ask for forgiveness. They need to see what it looks like to receive mercy and grace. They need to see us in our lives as objects of that. We need to be models of grace, not perfection. Those who have received God's grace. That's so important, right? Because as a parent, you're not going to do it all right. You're going to screw up a lot. But the good news is there's grace and there's mercy for you. So that's the first point. The second encouragement is this. You're not alone. You're not alone. To have your children baptized means that you, you, you've made them a part of the covenant community of God. That you have brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual grandparents and aunts and uncles that can pour into the lives of your children. And sometimes, and many of you know this with adult children, God uses people in the church, um, other people to get through to your children and to love them in a way that you couldn't. And it's a great gift, which is so important. Why it's, you need to bring your kids to church. <laughs> they, need, you need, they need to be part of the community of the church so they can actually get to know people in the church. But there's grace in the community that God gives us. And finally, the third point is this. Fundamental to the story of Jesus is that God is the one that does the saving and not us. If there's one area <laughs> where we um, often confuse our thinking, we think that it's up to us to save our children. And that if they, they walk away from the faith or they seem to be drifting, that it's on us. The reality is this, friends. Only God saves. Only God saves. Baptism is our ultimate belief in that truth, that God goes ahead and he goes behind, right? And sometimes the behind is way behind. But baptism is a surrendering and offering our children up to God and his grace. And it puts us in a posture of trust that the Lord is the one who saves and he is gracious. And so we entrust ourselves to that. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are the Lord who saves, that you as uh, members of your household, uh, that you extend your grace and promises to our children. Lord, help us as parents have wisdom and courage um, and clarity of what it means to raise our children 
in Jesus Christ, to live into their baptism, and help us as followers of you to live more fully into that reality of our own baptism. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace. I pray uh, for your encouragement this morning for parents and grandparents and all of us, Lord, uh, to follow you, to love you, to know deep in our hearts that uh, we love you because you first loved us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.